Dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or criminal, or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then, let us who suffer, according to the will of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator, as they do good. Thus Peter concludes the general thrust of his exhortation to the Christians of Asia Minor to whom he is writing in the first letter of Peter. In the first chapter, through chapter 2 and verse 10, we have seen how Peter has tried to encourage these Christians going through this kind of trial. That they have this rebirth through the resurrection and the hope of salvation that has been revealed to them, the great value of that salvation, and therefore why they need to live as holy, to live in love, that they are sustained by God's message, that they are the temple of God, and they are the spiritual Israel. In the first phase of really getting into this message in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter has been encouraging honorable conduct before all people, recognizing that these Christians are living in a hostile environment and the people around them are going to be watching them with suspicion. And therefore, they are to suffer for doing right, as Christ has set an example for them. And Peter applies that to Christian slaves, Christian wives, Christian husbands, and then all Christians. The core exhortation to have the mind of Christ, to suffer so as to no longer find satisfaction in the flesh, to bless when reviled, and to entrust themselves to God when reviled has been occupying Peter ever since. And particularly in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, Peter has talked about how the end of all things is at hand, and there were a bunch of points that he has in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. The fact that they need to be prepared in prayer, they need to show love, they need to be hospitable, and they need to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. And so this new kind of theme he's brought in here, beginning in verse 7 through verse 11, about the end of all things at hand, now is brought together with the general theme that he's been uh, discussing about these Christians and what they've been enduring come together very powerfully in verses 12 through 19, as we have just read. He begins this section by telling them not to be astonished that they are experiencing this trial, as if it is something strange for them. And when we read this, it's very easy to get a kind of a hectoring or castigating, you know, how dare you not realize, or how come you wouldn't expect this, or why wouldn't you think this is going to happen? When we have to keep in mind the audience to whom Peter is writing. Uh, the Christians of Asia Minor are most likely primarily from among the Gentiles. And as Gentiles, uh, as Peter has already said, that they had been serving things in futility and thinking they could buy off uh, gods with gold and silver, they would not have experienced religious persecution because uh, in that kind of environment, you honor the gods, you try to keep the gods from hurting you, you will have no problem honoring other gods. And, and this is something that's very important for us to keep in mind, that all of the Romans would have recognized Yahweh as the God of Israel. 
uh, just like everybody beforehand recognized Yahweh as the God of Israel. People weren't in the habit of denying Yahweh was the God of Israel. The issue is that Israel was to recognize Yahweh was the only God, and all these other people found that to be uh, ridiculous, because in their perspective that is functionally atheism, because it means there really aren't gods if there is only one God. We have to remember that monotheism, which has become the kind of default religious posture by this point in our in, in human history, uh, in the 21st century, if you're going to have religious belief, was not normative in the first century, and quite the contrary. And so we have to keep that in mind. So for these Christians to now say, well, there is only this one God, now they're putting themselves in a position where they're going to be persecuted. They're going to receive hostility for their uh, uh, beliefs. And they may wonder, well, does this mean I have incurred the wrath of gods or, or God? And they may not have any expectation this was going to be something that was going to happen to them. And that's why Peter tells them that this should not be seen as strange. He's trying absolutely to normalize the experience of hostility because of faith. That is absolutely what Peter is trying to do here. Because it is something that his audience has not experienced as normal. So he's saying Christians are is supposed to expect, and that's something we can see throughout his letter, is that he's trying to reorient the minds of the people he's writing to, to to really be able to grapple with this, that they should expect hostility, they should expect persecution, they should expect these things, they need to be prepared for them. Yet, Peter would not have them actually catalyze it. Peter would not have them act so as to be persecuted in ways that would dishonor God. And that's what he's going to make clear as he continues. That they should not be amazed or astonished when this happens, uh, but they should rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, that when his glory is revealed, that uh, you would rejoice and be glad. It takes us all the way back to the beginning, the idea that there is rejoicing. And it also shows us how the story of Jesus has profoundly shaped the perspective of the apostles. Peter saw Jesus in his life, saw you know her, the experience of his death, saw him in the resurrection. And so he could see that arc uh, that P Paul will talk about in Philippians 2, the arc of deep humiliation and then great exaltation and thus glorification. And that there is that rejoicing that comes at the end of all of this. And this is very important. This is what's going to help them get through this. Because it is not a fun thing to go through trial and persecution. No one enjoys being thrown into a Roman prison, going through whatever torture they're going to go through. That may lead very, very easily to uh, suffering and death. Either execution or, or uh, from the wild animals in the uh, local theater and things like that. So, what's going to keep them going? Well, that they will rejoice, that they are suffering like Jesus suffered, and then they will obtain the fruit of that, which is the joy that comes when they are glorified, when Jesus comes in his glory. And this is something very important for us today to hear. Whereas Peter has an audience that is just not expecting persecution, and doesn't quite know what to do when it comes, and trying to prepare them for that. Today we have people who seem overly expecting persecution, 
and imagine any kind of difficulties or backlash they experience are a form of persecution. And we're going to get more into this as we see what Peter is going to talk about continually. But at the same time, ironically, there is also this surprise. I think a lot of people have taken for granted the normalization of Christian faith in Western society. And as it becomes slightly less normal, still plenty normal, just less normal, and more critique than before, we have seen reactions to this that are not like the reaction Peter has counseled. Uh, the general reaction is uh, we could call it an immature response to that kind of experience where the demand is, wait a second, we don't have the same kind of honor in society as we have before. Therefore, we need to agitate in society so that we can return to our honored position, which is not what Peter says here at all. Not expected by Peter at all. And in fact, contrary to what Peter would have the Christians to do here. Because Peter is not telling them because they are suffering resistance to you know stick it to the Romans. Instead, he says, rejoice that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. To go back to Jesus about this, not about trying to get some kind of mythic social standing. That, ironically, all the more agitation to try to impose and to obtain uh, is meaning it is slipping more and more out of their fingers as it alienates all of those who... Uh, do not fully agree with that project. And so we need to be careful and to really heed Peter's advice because I think it is easy to not expect it because we're expecting good things to come when we do good things. And so the immediate response to going through trial may not be the most mature or the most healthy. And that is why we need to bring it back to Jesus and to respond the way Jesus would respond uh, which, unfortunately, is not the way that you see it often modeled in our society today. Peter will continue in verse 14 that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory, the spirit of God, rests on you. And so he uh, here is making some allusions to um, passages we find elsewhere. Uh, particularly Isaiah 11 and verse 2, that the spirit of glory is the spirit of God, uh, going back to, to that kind of evocation. And again, reframing what they're experiencing and understanding here, that insult normally leads to dishonor and shame. That's the whole point of insult, and especially in an honor-shame society, uh, it can be very, very damaging. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around how people would get to the point of duels and things, but in an honor-shame society... Uh, it makes complete sense. But it's important to kind of see the contrast that he's continuing here in verse 15 and 16 to really understand what he's doing here in verse 14. That none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, criminal, or as uh, as the NET says, a troublemaker. Uh, the uh, Greek allotriopiskopos, we'll get into that in a minute. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. So he's, again, looking at the different kind of sufferings. And he's done this many times. In chapter 2, talking to Christian slaves, if you have done badly and you're beaten for it, what is that to you? But if you are beaten or you suffer for doing good, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He, it's as if he's constantly concerned that the Christians of Asia Minor are going to suffer some kind of difficulty not because they're a Christian as much as because they've been doing some things that do not glorify or honor Christ, 
but then think because they're suffering for it, that means that they are suffering as a Christian. Because uh, that's why uh, he says, do not let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, a criminal, or as a allotrio. It's episcopos. It's very interesting that this list of things, murderer, thief, criminal, we, we all recognize uh, the, the difficulties there, right? And, and why we should not suffer as any of those things, that they are transgressive, that they are taking life, depriving other people of their rightful property, transgressing the laws. But the horrible questions here is, who defines the criminal, right? That we need to recognize that uh, the criminal is not somebody to, very easily for Christians today, the word, you can just call somebody criminal, and that's just going to kind of cast them as the other and yet, many Christians were recognized as criminals. That's why in Hebrews 13, uh, Christians were supposed to visit one another in prison as if they were the ones in prison, because the crime they had committed was being a Christian. And uh, a lot of times you have unjust governments imposing standards of criminal behavior, which is really just to support themselves, and they uh, will give license to immorality and will condemn something that is good and righteous uh, and uh, appropriate. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. But Peter here is not trying to get in that kind of thing. Uh, Peter has in mind somebody who has transgressed laws that exist for good reason, and the person should not have transgressed them. And these are all things that we would consider as as very serious. But then we get to the troublemaker one, and, and we keep going back to this Greek word, alotrios piskopos. It's, we call it a hepaxlegomenon, a one-time-use word in the New Testament. And some believe that perhaps a word Peter has invented. It literally means another overseer. So alotrio is another, and episcopos is overseer, bishop, uh, the term that you will see in other parts of the New Testament. In fact, Peter himself is going to talk about uh, elders doing the work of oversight in just a few verses. So it's the idea that somebody's trying to be another person's boss. That's the idea of another, uh, of the, uh, that's why it's sometimes translated as meddler, uh, troublemaker, somebody who has no right to be somebody else's boss, trying to be uh, the boss. And this is where we can see where Peter is getting very uncomfortably modern on us, isn't he? Because these are the kind of things that people do, and then they get pushback, and then they think they're being persecuted. And this is what Peter is really trying to warn them about. But if you suffer as a Christian, he says, don't be ashamed, but instead glorify God that you have such a name, bear such a name. Now, Christian is not a word used often in the New Testament. <clears throat> and they were first called that in Antioch in Acts 11.26. It is otherwise used in Acts 26.28 by Agrippa, that would Paul would soon try to persuade him to be a Christian. It means something like one of Christ or a little Christ. It is believed that it began as a pejorative term, that it was a slur used against the Christians. Its origin is Latin. Yes, we see it in Greek as Christianos. But that ending is not a standard Greek ending. That's not the way that you would frame the word if you're making it out of Greek. It sounds like it's coming from Latin. And especially from Antioch and Syria, the people speaking Latin are going to be the, uh, the government officials. And so it may be something involved their Roman authorities, where they're trying to understand what they're seeing, and that's the term they come up with. And so this is a way that this has often happened, where the people who are being called this appropriate the term, that is being used for them in insulting ways to honor uh, the one for whom they're being dishonored. And this works especially well for Christians who are going to be 
considering the fact that to suffer like their master is a glory to them. And so to be called a little Christ, or to be called one of Christ, is not going to be a problem. That's not something that they're going to find difficult, problematic. Uh, they will, in fact, consider this an honor because of who they recognize Jesus to be. And so even though it was a term that was maligned at the time, maybe a term that has led to maligning now, it is a term that we should have no shame identifying ourselves as Christians. And as Peter has used here, and even Peter commends that, that, you know, that you should in fact glory in God that you have been able or you have been considered worthy of bearing that kind of name. And so what you see here is that there are times where you're going to suffer, Peter says, and you're going to suffer because you are a Christian. You're going to be doing good things. You're going to be honoring God. You're going to suffer. In those situations, you glorify God. You rejoice in the glory God is going to provide for all the suffering you're going through. But he also shows there are these other times that people might suffer, and they're suffering justly because they've been doing things they shouldn't be doing. And this is the important thing for Christians today to consider. We have Christians who are very sensitive to persecution. In fact, it may even be said that they have a persecution complex. They look at any kind of resistance or disagreement or difficulty as persecution. Now, it might well be that we are going through a time where we are getting some pushback to principles of our faith that are rooted in our faith that can be properly called persecution. On the other hand, the way that we should respond to that is not the way that most are in fear-mongering, trying to establish some kind of political action or some kind of defensive rearguard action. It should lead us to, in fact, glorify God and to put our trust in Jesus, not to elect a certain kind of politician. Um, but even then, we are often tempted when we think we're being persecuted, we think we get the righteousness complex because of our persecution, and that justifies and excuses behavior that actually doesn't glorify or honor Jesus. There are plenty of times where Christians today are getting excoriated, not because they are reflecting Jesus, but because they are reflecting the ugliness of their culture, ugliness of, a, of the ideologies that they've been in, enraptured in and enslaved to. Uh, where it's the implications, it's the way they treat people. It, it's not honoring Jesus. And they are actually being properly taken to task to suffer justly for what they're going through. Uh, you have a lot of Christians, a lot of churches right now going through trials when it comes to uh, the sexual abuse of minors and women. And they may cry out they're being persecuted or unjustly affected, but in fact they're just receiving the fruit of the behaviors that had been justified, rationalized, excused, or not addressed in previous times. Um, even on issues where we can say, for instance, how we view and treat women in terms of maybe some of the things they can or cannot do in the assembly, how we can look at people who are part of the lesbian, gay, uh, queer communities, uh, how we may consider people in the transgender community uh, or things of that nature, even if our faith posture demands that we may not be as accommodative as people in these communities would like or appreciate, that even then, we still recognize their humanity, treat them with dignity and honor, not treat them in derisive ways, not hold them in contempt. Because a lot of times, even if we're right on the substance of the doctrine, the way we're treating people like that is not glorifying God in Christ. And that's where we need to be careful. And 
Likewise, you have Christians who may have more liberal political ideas who uh, hold in derision uh, those who have a more conservative ideas, and that also does not glorify Jesus. Uh, the goal is to not do anything where we are not glorifying Jesus. And we really need to focus again on that idea of being uh, another as overseer. There are a lot of people who appoint themselves as the overseer of other people. A lot of people have taken on the position of judge. And they may think they're doing it for the most holy and righteous reason. They may say, well, God appointed Ezekiel as a watchman. I should be a watchman. Well, here's the thing. God appointed Ezekiel to be a watchman. He identified him as a prophet, inspired him in the spirit to do that, and held him accountable as such. Uh, not suggesting people, God may not hold people of that nature uh, to account. Maybe he does establish such people. But... Um, more often than not, they act like the another overseer uh, that God did not appoint uh, and uh, that none should suffer as in First Peter chapter 4 here. We need to be very careful when we decide we are the ones who have the ability to stand in judgment or to act like we are the bosses of others, either bosses of people in other churches, bosses of people within our own church, bosses of other people in other circumstances. Um God has established certain oversight and will hold people who have that oversight into accountability. Uh, there are some people who are going to not have a great day on the day of judgment because they arrogated themselves positions God never provided for them. And we need to be very careful about that and to recognize that, notice what Peter says here, we should not suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or as another boss, as that meddler, as that uh, troublemaker which invariably people who put themselves in that position and are always looking at things through the lens of critique will become. Another thing Christians must always remember is that our adversary is the accuser of our brethren. We understand him as Satan or the Diabolos, the devil. He is the adversary and the accuser. And sometimes the most effective worker for our accuser are those who accuse their fellow brothers and sisters. On the other hand, there are times where our brothers and sisters need to be uh, held accountable for their conduct. And that when we see all kinds of immorality being justified or excused because there is no such uh, accountability. And so it's, again, it's no easy, clear answer. It's attention. It's something we need to be careful about because there's uh, good issues going on either side. But it's very easy to fall into that judgmental, another boss mentality, and we need to avoid it at all costs. Because of these things, Peter says, Peter is seeing this persecution, seeing these difficulties, and he says, returning back to that theme back in verse 7, the culmination of all things is near, that time for judgment is about to begin. And what's extraordinary here is he says it starts at the house of God. And if it starts at the house of God, what's going to happen to those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? Quoting from Proverbs 11, uh, if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the, righteous, the, the ungodly and the sinners? And so he's, he's talking about judgment. And what's interesting is that you have some verses, like in John 3 and things, where Jesus starts talking about how Christians are exempt from judgment or the judgments are passed by them. And we should not use those to the extent of thinking that there's no accountability, no standard, because throughout the scriptures, we, we're told we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And Peter is an astute observer of the history of the people of God. And he has seen that there are times where God will judge the nations. But God always tends to start with his own people. He cleans house before he goes and judges everybody else. And, he, and, and 
Peter can see this, how it works in the wilderness journeys. He can see how this works in the trials and tribulations of his, of his people, leading to the exiles of 722 and 586. Uh, he very much may have in mind recognition that this is about to come upon Jerusalem again uh, in a few years. And so judgment begins at the house of God. And this is a very important principle that Christians need to grapple with, is that judgment begins with us. God is going to clean house before he's going to deal with everybody else. And the way that God goes through that judgment, yes, we're looking for that ultimate day of judgment, right, when the Lord Jesus returns, and, and that's certainly there. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't go through periods of judgment on his people at other times. And we have to be open to the fact that God might well be judging his people. We're seeing all these changes in our society. We're seeing steep declines in participation and membership in churches. Maybe that's a judgment of God. And maybe that judgment is being accomplished through the means of uh, how things are going because people see fruit and uh, they don't want any part of that fruit anymore. And what used to be tolerated or commended by society isn't. And so those changes are made and uh, churches are being found to have not sufficiently upheld Jesus. I know it's so easy to condemn them because they're not following their most recent fad and to think that it's just, well, people aren't respecting the universal truth and the, that the church is maintaining anymore. Uh, this is all an attempt to dodge and deflect when the first posture of the humble Christian should not be dodging and deflecting, but to hear, to consider the critique, to see what we may be doing that is not glorifying God, what, what other people may have seen that we have been blinded from seeing or that we don't really want to see. Uh, so that we can maintain appropriate humility, lament, confession, so that we may be a group of people that uh, glorifies and honors God and has that humility and people might be willing to consider that m maybe we are <clears throat> whistling to the judgment just like Israel did because Israel could find all kinds of theological reasons to understand, justify, and rationalize why they continued in their ways uh, despite what would be the ultimate fate of them. And so that's where the judgment begins. And of course, he says, if that's going to happen, to those of us who are among God's people, then what's going to happen to those who aren't, who don't obey the gospel of God? Very interesting phraseology there, right? Obey the gospel of God, who do not heed the message that God has come, Jesus has lived, has died for our sins, has been raised in power on the third day, reigns as Lord, and is going to return one day in judgment. That if you don't obey that, there's there's no hope. That's, that's the idea here, or there's very little hope. And that's, again, quoting from Proverbs 11, and what's going on with that? The righteous are barely saved. What will become of the ungodly and sinners? And again, the idea of being barely saved is something that you can take, overemphasize, and abuse. Uh, Peter's not trying to say that uh, God has very weak abilities to save, uh, that God hasn't done everything he possibly could to save us, or that God is in the saving business. Instead, what he's pointing out is that... Uh, most people turn away that throughout the history of the people of God, it's only been a remnant, even of those who believe there's only been a remnant that has entered into life. What Jesus kind of talks about in terms of narrow is the way and difficult to find that leads to life and it's few that find it. Not trying to suggest that we should make salvation harder than it already is, but it's just a recognition that when it's already this big of a challenge, 
what's going to become of those who don't even bother trying, the ungodly and the sinners, which, of course, a recognition that when those who are alienated from God want to stay alienated from God, then God will give them over to their alienation for all eternity. And it's not going to be good, not something that they want to uh, have or to enjoy, nothing to enjoy at all. And so he's brought it all together here. He's brought the, the concepts together of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming back soon, or the culmination of all things is at hand. All this left is for Jesus to return. How are we going to live? We need to love one another. We need to be sober in mind in prayer. We need to show hospitality. We need to serve one another. When we go through these sufferings, it should not surprise us. We should not be suffering because of the crimes we've committed or because we have transgressed or that we have inserted ourselves into places we had no right to insert ourselves. But we, if we suffer because we have embodied Christ, then we are commended. We have the, the Spirit of God upon us. Uh, we can rejoice when Jesus comes in his glorification. We realize that, yep, a day is coming in which we are going to uh, endure uh, judgment. The judgment will be manifest and evident. We will definitely see uh, everybody held to account, including ourselves. And thus Peter prides his conclusion. So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what is Peter's encouragement to the Christians of Asia Minor in the end? What does he say to Christians going through trial and difficulty? What would he say to us if indeed we are entering into one of the more apocalyptic scenarios that many want to imagine in their fever dreams today? What's going to happen to us? Well, they are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So much powerful stuff here. Great summation of the Christian life. That... When you suffer according to the will of God, again, we've already talked about suffering according to the will of God versus suffering uh, because you've transgressed the will of God. Very different things. Should not confuse them at all. But yeah, people are going to suffer for the will of God. They're going to believe and uphold in the most loving, humble ways what God has established in Jesus, and they're going to be hated for it. They're going to be derided for it. They're going to be mistreated for it. They may suffer economically. They may suffer in terms of social standing. They may even be imprisoned, tortured, and even lose their lives. What are you supposed to do in those circumstances? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. You don't trust yourselves to politicians telling you they're going to make you great again. You don't trust yourselves to some kind of organization or system. You instead entrust yourselves to a faithful creator. That Going back to God is the originator of all this. God has a plan for it all. God is the one in charge of it all. And he is faithful. Notice here, Peter's not saying, become a doormat, have no expectation good or right will ever prevail. He's just talked about the fact there will be a judgment, and the ungodly and sinners will be judged. There will be a judgment of all these people treating you poorly. But it's not for you to make. It's not your judgment. It's not your call. You entrust yourself to the Creator who is much better at it than you are, or than, than I am. That's the hard thing for us to do. We want to be the judges. We want to see that justice done. Uh, but we certainly don't want to see justice done when it comes to our injustices or how we have transgressed, right? And therefore, it's so important for us to do that in trusting ourselves to a faithful creator. Not seeking vengeance, but giving space to God to judge righteously is one of the hardest things that we are to do as Christians. And the next thing that is just as difficult is to continue to do good. Peter does not say stop doing good because people are doing treating you badly. 
He expects them to continue to do good. Continue to seek the welfare of people around you. Continue to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to provide lodging for those who have none. Visit those who are in prison. Uh, it may lead to suffering. You might get bitten. It might get burned for doing that. And what are you supposed to do in that situation? You are to entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good because when that happens to you, you are suffering according to the will of God. It almost becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. By doing good for people, you're going to suffer for it, but in that suffering, you are entrusting yourself to God, and so you continue to do good. And we kind of recoil at that. We kind of think of that as being a doormat. We kind of think of that as, as being taken advantage of. And there's that visceral feeling we have when we're being taken advantage of that we just do not enjoy or appreciate. Now, there, there's other wisdom in the New Testament, you know, that at some point you have to knock off the dust off your feet and move on from people, that you're not to give to, uh, dogs what is holy. Uh, and so there's there are times where there there is discernment and discretion about how we approach people and how we work with people and how much of ourselves we expose to people. But this should not mean that we should not maintain a disposition of love, care, and concern for anybody, even those who have harmed, especially those who have harmed us or sought uh, our, our suffering and difficulty in Jesus. And that is why it is so important for us to focus on these things and to realize that, yeah, we might be in a situation where we are like the Christians of Asia Minor. We are called upon to suffer because of our commitment to Jesus, where the name of Christ and Christian is not something that is honorable to society, but something that is deemed as shameful. Yet we should still glorify God that we bear that name. We should endure that suffering not in an attempt to overcome it by physical force or electoral persuasion in as much as to try to reestablish our cultural our integrity or cultural standing as much as to entrust our souls to the faithful creator while doing good and to give that space to God to be the judge and to do all that we can to encourage everybody to change their hearts and minds to become uh, like us so that they can share in life as we have shared in life because if we through such difficulty are going to share in life uh, what hope do they have if they're not sharing in such things that is why we should trust in our faithful creator sometimes it's hard to trust that our creator is being faithful but we need to trust that he is our creator that he is faithful and to do good what do you have to say about 1 Peter 4, 12-19? What comments? Do you have any questions about anything we've talked about? We'd love to hear them. Please let us know uh, and comment where you found us and subscribe to us. And let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us, for the blessings of life, for the blessings of uh, the material creation and the physical blessings of this life, but especially for every spiritual blessing with which you have blessed us in Jesus and the hope that we have in Jesus that you have given us. And we pray, Father, for the strength and wisdom to recognize and see that we need to put our trust in you and to seek to do good even when we suffer, especially when we suffer for doing good. Uh, we pray that we would not suffer because we are transgressing, that we are acting uh, as criminals or transgressing your will or just meddling or uh, being a boss that no one uh, gave us authority to be. Uh, but instead that if we're going to suffer, we're suffering because we are doing your will. And to recognize that we do that as much as it is unpleasant and uncomfortable, that we should not try to gain vengeance or try to somehow overcome these things in a physical way, but instead to trust ourselves to you, recognize that you have seen and that you will judge. 
and that our purpose is to bring forth condemnation on the world, our body of the salvation you have provided in Jesus, and that you will judge in the end. And we, we understand that judgment will come. We may be experiencing forms of that judgment in your own way. We pray that we would be able to endure it and in all things glorify you. We look forward to the return of your Son and the consummation of all things. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're so thankful again that you've joined us and, and given us the gift of this time that you spent with us. I'm Ethan. We're with Adventure to Christ. Uh, we'd love to be of encouragement to you in any way that we can. Please visit us at VentureToChrist.org. Or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.